So as we uh, begin this morning's teaching, I'm going to invite you to imagine with me, fast forward in your life, imagine that you are like 90 years old. You've had a long life, longer than many of your friends. You've married, you've had children, um, or you've uh, had children that you've invested in, people that you've invested in, they have had children. And in the last several years, um, grandchildren have even had children. There are generations of people that you are connected to. Perhaps you are a great grandparent. But it has become clear in your 90s, your time is waning. Perhaps your partner's already passed, as have brothers and sisters. And you are the last in your immediate family circle. And so before you leave this earth, your great grandchild, or perhaps a, a, the, the child that, of, of people you have invested in, a young child asks you to read them your story, asks you to write it because they want to read it. And so you set upon the task of considering your story diligently. You write down snippets you can remember. You pull up emails and text messages from a lifetime ago. You begin forwarding things perhaps to your granddaughter, this child's mother. You agree to help with the project. She agrees to help with the project. She does some digging herself. She finds some writings that seem relevant from a decade ago that your partner wrote before they died. There's a blog post. There are social media posts. There's a journal of your sisters that's been discovered. You're hopeful that as all these resources come together, you'll be able to examine them carefully, to sort out the dates, to draw upon them and tell one coherent story. But time isn't on your side. You lay down for a nap one afternoon, surrounded by journals and old social media posts, and you don't awake. The, the person who's helping you, perhaps your granddaughter, decides to complete the project. But she can't synthesize all these sources. She could never have enough of the big picture to quite know how to put them together, what you would emphasize, what you would leave out. And so she just compiles them all. Perhaps she creates a website inviting others to share their stories or writings that they've received from you over the years and words pour in. There are poems you wrote as gifts to friends on their birthdays 20 years ago. There are so many pictures of you and your kin on vacations, at one another's weddings, celebrating the births of children, comforting each other in loss, divorce, gaining weight, losing it, sometimes gaining it again, growing older, grieving one another's passings. There are stories from children and grandchildren in your life. There are memories of things you said, ways you confused people, ways you made them laugh. And when these stories are edited and compiled into this anthology of your life, it's not the story you imagined you would have written. But every son and daughter, every friend, every grandchild who reads this, who hears, they, who, who takes it in, they hear you singing to them through the writing. 
through this layered expression of all kinds of pieces, your story is shared. Your voice speaks. Those who love you and miss you find comfort in this work. For them, this, this book, this compilation becomes precious. For though it doesn't tell them everything about you, it shares enough. It brings you into contact. It becomes sacred. Well, I start us with this little imaginative exercise because we have a few teachings left in our current teaching series I'm calling Recovering the Sacred. And in this series, we're looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah for some inspiration as we consider how a spiritual community might rebuild after a season of significant trauma and disruption, just as we ourselves are trying to do after more than a year of virtual only community life. And as we've been touching on this season of reordering, it's about more than coming together just after the pandemic. Because even before COVID, many of us in this space hit some version of what Father Richard Rohr, who we've been looking at a lot in this series, calls disorder. Something about life got in the way of the order we may have once experienced, which might have led us to some sort of crisis of faith or reason to look for a different kind of faith community or a different understanding of spirituality and so on. And today's topic, the concept that I wanna focus on from the story we're looking at today has to do with what I would call sacred texts. Sacred texts, what role do sacred texts play in a reordered life of faith? Now I say that wanting to acknowledge that as a community in the Jesus-centered or Christian tradition, our sacred texts are found in the Bible, both the Hebrew Bible, like we've been looking at in this series, coming to us first from the Jewish tradition, sometimes also called by Christians, the Old Testament, as well as of course, the New Testament, the recorded stories from the life of Jesus and communication around the early church, those folks who were trying to carry Jesus's teaching and mission forward. But truth be told, in a community like Haven, we've got a number of folks with different kinds of relationships with this set of sacred texts. Some of us were raised or had our faith formed in evangelical or other Bible-centric traditions. And many of us may have had positive experiences with the Bible throughout our lives when we were in a season of order. But once we hit some sort of disorder, the Bible might have felt less like a source of life and perhaps more like a weapon, something to be used by those in power to try to control us or condemn us or those around us, people we love and care for. For some of us, the wounds of that experience are still tender. And it can be hard for us to even think about the Bible at all without feeling their sting. I wanna acknowledge that and say, if that's where you're at today, I see you. Others of us, that's not our story. Perhaps we've spent most of our life not really knowing much about the Bible at all, or only bits and pieces we picked up you know, in, in broader culture. 
perhaps our primary lens for understanding the Bible has actually been through our participation in Haven, through teachings by people like me, or conversations with other folks in our community. And some of us are perhaps, you know, in their own category, kind of neither this nor that, perhaps discovering the Bible in a season of reordering. And so folks have developed a relationship with the Bible it, that simply has been helpful and fruitful without a lot of that negative hangup that, uh, that some people share. Or perhaps folks have uh, had a, an experience of the Bible in their season of order and then have moved through disorder and, and kind of done that in conversation with the text and are now coming to a different place, a place of healing, a place of reclaiming. Wherever you personally are at, I think it's helpful for us as a community in this season of corporate reordering to think together about what role our sacred texts might play in the life of our spiritual community and how, like in the example I used, those texts might connect us ultimately to the one behind the texts themselves, the one whose stories are actually being told. Ultimately, how might making space for these texts together in the midst of our recovering community help us connect with God? So the story we're looking at today comes from Nehemiah 8. The little setup for that, the, the context, is that um, as we saw last week, the officer from the Persian emperor's court, Nehemiah, has come to Jerusalem with a calling to rebuild the walls there and help the city become a safer place to inhabit. And he does that and it's successful. And then rather than just returning to Susa, um, to that capital of Persia, when the project is done, Nehemiah ends up staying in Jerusalem and serving as the governor there, at least for a season. And that's the situation in the background when we encounter today's story. So picking it up at the very end of Nehemiah 7, going into Nehemiah 8. When the seventh month arrived and the Israelites were settled in their cities, all the people gathered together in the plaza, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which included men and women and all those able to understand what they heard. And this happened on the first day of the seventh month. So he read it before the plaza in front of the water gate from dawn till noon before the men and women and those children who could understand. And all the people were eager to hear the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a towering wooden platform constructed for this purpose and standing near him on his right were Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkajah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Mashulam. Ezra opened the book in plain view of all the people, for he was elevated above all the people. And when he opened the book, all the people stood up and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people replied, amen, amen, as they lifted their hands and then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
and Jeshua, Banai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Talita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Paliah. All of them who were Levites were teaching the people the law as the people remained standing. And they read from the book of God's law, explaining it and imparting insight. And thus the people gained understanding from what was read. Okay, so we're gonna go on in a minute. We'll just pause there real quick to clarify what we've heard so far with all these, in the midst of all these names, <laughs> what this story Nehemiah is, is telling us is that after um, the temple of Jerusalem has been rebuilt and the walls and gates have been restored and folks are now settling into all the neighborhoods and feeling more safe, there's this experience in which the people decide to have this big rally. The whole community gathers and asks the scholar and priest who we've met before named Ezra to read to them from the Torah which is here called the law, right? Which means essentially he's reading from the first five books of the Bible, which tradition attributed to coming from Moses. So Ezra holds this mass Bible reading where he reads from the top of this tall podium and the whole community shows up for it. And not only do they show up, but they demonstrate a kind of reverence for the reading of the text by standing up. And this reading of sacred texts apparently goes on for several hours, the story says, from dawn till noon, at least. And the people are responding as they hear it in emotional ways. Some are raising their hands. Some are bowing on the ground. Now, scholars look at this particular story we're looking at. And consider it to be kind of one of the core stories that's telling, that's showing us the important transition that the Jewish community was undergoing in this season of its history, right? They are moving from being a faith based in oral tradition and kind of priestly sacrificial practices to a faith based in a written word. The Jewish people are becoming what some call a people of the book. So let's read on to hear what the story says happens next. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priestly scribe, and the Levites who were imparting understanding to the people said to all of them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping when they heard the words of the law. And he said to them, go and eat delicacies and drink sweet drinks and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to your Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Then the Levites quieted all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not grieve. So all the people departed to eat and drink and share their food with others and enjoy tremendous joy for they had gained insight in the matters that had been made known to them. And on the second day of the month, so the next day, the family leaders met with Ezra the scribe to gather with all the people, the priests, the Levites, to consider the words of the law. And they discovered, written in the law, that the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, which is called the Festival of Tabernacles. And that they should make a proclamation and disseminate this message in all their cities and in Jerusalem, go to the hill country, bring back olive branches and branches of wild olive trees, myrtle trees, date palms, other leafy trees to construct temporary shelters as it is written. 
So the people went out and they brought these things back and they constructed temporary shelters for themselves, each on his roof and in his courtyard and in the courtyards of the temple of God and in the plaza of the water gate and the plaza of the Ephraim gate. So all the assembly, which had returned from the exile, constructed temporary shelters and lived in them. Basically, they're pitching tents, we would say. They are putting up little temporary homes to inhabit together, kind of having a big camp out. The Israelites had not done so from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. Everyone experienced a very great joy, Ezra read in the book of the law of God day by day from the first day to the last. They observed the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, they held an assembly as was required. And that's our story. All right, so to summarize this second portion, after hearing the text and having all these emotional responses and feasting at the sacredness of the experience they've been having, the people come back for more. And on that second day of the reading, they connect with hearing about the tradition of building shelters for the Feast of Tabernacles, this ancient festival, and they realize that they haven't actually experienced that festival, at least not in the way it's being described in the text that they're reading. And so, and this festival happens to be prescribed for the time of year that we are in at this point. And so they feel inspired to go and build these shelters and recover some of these traditions around celebrating this Feast of Tabernacles. And it becomes a very joyous experience. So essentially, in our story, we have the tale of a community in recovery, discovering a sort of lost treasure again. They are discovering anew the beauty and power of their ancient sacred texts. And when they come together around these texts, powerful things seem to happen among them. In some religious circles, this might be described as a revival. However you describe the phenomenon, it seems to bring new vitality to the community and to the connection with the divine. So how might these sto this story be instructive to us as we think about our own connection to the Bible and all the roles and, and the role it might play in reordering our personal and collective spiritual lives? I have three insights I think um, I want to share from the that this story illustrates for us to consider this morning. So the first is this one. Sacred texts are powerfully experienced when explored in community with others. Sacred texts are powerfully experienced when explored in community with others. So this story is not one about a single person discovering and reading anew some ancient documents. It's about a community recovering the stories of their faith together and entering together into conversation about those stories. You have teachers walking through the crowd. All of those names were people who were helping with the teaching. They're walking through the crowd. They're sharing their insights. They're, they're convening these smaller groups to make sure everyone grasps what they're hearing. Folks are eating together. They're now camping out in temporary homes, like tents, sleeping alongside one another, chatting about the things they heard read that day, collaborating about their understanding. And this all points us to how I think sacred texts are intended to function. 
they're not supposed to be this like owner's manual that simply clearly sets out directives for how you live or how you worship. But they're intended to engage us in collective conversations with those we are present with and those who've come before us. If you're not convinced that's the case, I would encourage you to think about what our Bible actually is. Scripture is extraordinarily diverse. I've said it before and I will say it again, the Bible's not best understood as a book. It's more helpful to consider it a library or an anthology. It's similar to the document we imagined in the beginning, right? And in that way, the Bible tells the bigger story of our faith, not through one narrative stream, but through story and poetry and prophecy and personal correspondence, all layered upon one another, all in dialogue with each other. There are stories that were eventually collected and transcribed after being told around campfires for generations. There were story, there were songs, there were poems, there were prayers, there were prophecies of gloom and doom and judgment. And then there are accounts from the life of Jesus, accounts of the early church written with an agenda to convince others of what the authors have witnessed. And then there are like letters written between friends. The 66 books that make up our Bible are written by a variety of people from a variety of cultures and eras with a variety of motives over several centuries. And they give a variety of perspectives, as we've seen even in this teaching series. Sometimes the perspectives are in debate with one another. A few weeks ago in our conversation on sacred heritage, I described this reality this way. I said, our very Bible is not a declaration, but a dialogue. It's not a declaration, but a dialogue. So if the Bible itself is in dialogue with itself, how can we not engage it in a way that gives space for dialogue, debate, disagreement, changing our mind, collective meaning-making? In our 21st century world, particularly after the long season of physical distancing we've all endured in the last couple of years, I think we've all gotten used to interacting with in information very individually and in whatever way we choose, right? A quick Google search can often provide answers within seconds to any question that might pop in your head. And you can spend, you can scroll all night making your own meanings of those things if you so choose, including passages from the Bible. But truthfully, for most of human history, including the whole era that our sacred texts arise from, which is a period spanning perhaps as much as 1500 years, human beings could not interact with information in any way near what we've been accustomed to. It was only in the 15th century, less than 600 years ago, which you know, in the span of human history is pretty young still. It was only 600 years ago that the printing press was invented and it became possible to mass produce the written word. Before that time, the vast majority of human beings had little to no access to writing materials. And so most, the vast majority of most were illiterate. In the first 1400 years of the Christian church, many towns only had one Bible. And it was chained to the wall of their Catholic church 
because of the immense value of that physical book. It took a whole year of copyists writing by hand in order to produce one copy. And there was just a handful of folks in any given town, mostly priests, who understood how to read it. And so to be in touch with sacred texts, you did not have the option to just pull out your phone or your leather bound book and read the Bible and have a quiet time to connect with God. You had to go to the synagogue. You had to go to the town square or the house church or eventually the cathedral to hear any of these sacred stories from your tradition. And there you would be with other people in relationship, being moved by all of it together. That's the world Jesus inhabited and the work he was engaged in. He was one who knew the texts, who had studied them, who had remarkable capacity for learning them and probably committed a lot of them to memory. And he had done deep work to understand the ways they pointed to deep spiritual truth and brought those insights out as any good rabbi of his era would do in conversation with others. Now, of course, I'm not saying that there's no value to individual study of scripture. I think that that's an important practice and it was probably how Jesus himself formed his own take on the texts he preached on. We that have the privilege of reading the scripture on our own, that is a gift to us. We should take advantage of. But I am saying that to get the ultimate benefit, I believe sacred texts can bring us, we need to be in conversation with other people. Is that I believe is where the work of sacred texts comes to life. Does that make sense? So that's the first insight. The second insight from this story I see is this. Sacred texts need to work with other elements to help us move forward in faith. Sacred texts need to work with other elements to help us move forward in faith. As I think you all have picked up on this summer, I'm on a bit of a Richard Rohr kick right now. I'm rereading a lot of his work. I'm discovering more that I hadn't read before or listened to and, and leaning a lot on those insights in this series. And in that vein, I listened to a podcast this week that was recorded a few years ago. And in it, Father Richard Rohr was being interviewed about his take on the Bible. And he used this image that um, in that conversation that I found particularly helpful. And Rohr described the methodology for spirituality that he teaches at his kind of spiritual school as being a tricycle, okay? The tricycle, of course, has three wheels. And for Rohr, the first wheel, the front wheel is experience. And the back wheels are scripture and tradition. So Rohr believes that all three wheels, experience, scripture, and tradition are needed to move together forward. And if any of them are missing, you don't have a very holistic reading of the moment you're in or a very deep Christian experience. So by Rohr's assessment, a historic error of the Catholic faith of which he is a part, uh, has been in overemphasizing the tradition wheel in trying to focus solely on or drive predominantly with that, to lead with that. On the other side, he believes Protestants have overemphasized the Bible, have tried to make the scripture the driving force. 
but both of these for Father Rohr are ultimately a problem because they're actually not very honest about the reality that we can't help but always be led by our own experience. Experience leads all of us. And that's not a bad thing. I think for Rohr, he would say it can't be any other way. But rather often what we do is we try to justify, we try to hide that truth. And so we look for proof texts if we're Protestants to kind of justify our experience, the, the conclusions we've come to. Or we look for traditions, we look for practices of the saints if we're Catholics that kind of justify our, the conclusions we've come to by our experience without being really honest about the, the, the truth where we're kind of leaning, why we're leaning into what we're leaning into. And so for Rohr, you know, I think the goal is to let's be truthful about the fact that, of course, we're led by experience. And that's not a bad thing. The sacred works through experience. But it's helpful to have some, some pieces to kind of help direct that experience, to keep experience accountable, he says. So we don't just kind of go off into any direction wheresoever. Our, the, the back wheels of scripture and tradition for him kind of help us move in a more clear path forward rather than just go any which way. So in this story, we have this group of people who have had some really powerful experiences together of seeing the divine slowly over time partner with them to cultivate and rebuild their sacred community. First, that happens in the decree by the emperor of Persia, right? Emperor Cyrus, who releases the exiles and says they can return to Babylon. And then there's these gifts over the generations from subsequent emperors who help basically fund the rebuilding. And, and there's leaders sent their way by people like Ezra and Nehemiah. These, these people as a community have started to have some genuine experiences of the divine, but they also recognize ways in which they've become unmoored from their own history. They don't have the back wheels to their tricycle in a way that are very functional. And so as a collective, this hunger seems to be articulated, it manifests, and as the people begin to recover their stories, their texts, their history, a deeper understanding of who this God is that they are connected to, what tradition they are a part of, what this God has done for their people in the past, what sacred dialogues they are continuing, this gives them forward momentum. So they recover traditions from their ancestors and they embody them anew in their own time, fueling their own personal experiences once more in powerful ways. And so their experiences lead them to seek out resources that ultimately further their experiences and help them connect more deeply with one another and with God. It's a bit of a virtuous cycle. So Haven, as we reorder, what if this was the kind of relationship we too could have with scripture in our recovery work? What if we could recover relationship with the Bible in which we allowed it to serve us and helping direct our experiential life of faith, but not to rule us? What new life, what new forward momentum in our own spirituality might we experience in doing so? In our, I want to finally end with a, a third insight. We've talked about the collective experience. We've talked about 
pairing our understanding of text with other experiences, with other elements. Finally, thirdly, I see this too in our story. Ultimately, sacred text should connect us with the joy that comes in understanding that we are loved. Sacred text should connect us with the joy that comes in understanding that we are loved. This, I believe, is the heart of the sacred conversation that scripture is recording. That ultimately, the core thing to know about the divine is that God is love. God loves each of us deeply. Jesus embodies that love in the flesh, even going all the way to offering himself as a demonstration of self-giving love. Scripture, I believe, is intended to be a gift to help us at our core understand this truth. And that truth should bring joy. In our story, the priests and the Levites tell the people not to weep, but to celebrate. I imagine that hearing some of their, their stories, some of their laws, recognizing kind of the gaps between um, maybe how God was, what God was calling their ancestors to and where, how they were living, they felt grief, they felt shame. But ultimately, discovering the word of God should not bring shame or grief or fear. It should bring belovedness, a sense of our belonging and joy. If that's not what the practice of our faith is doing, if our scripture readings and our traditions aren't pointing our tricycle more deeply into the ways of love and service and compassion and connection with the world around us, then I think something's off. Friends, I believe that just as that imaginary compilation of texts we considered in the beginning has the capacity to reveal our hearts to those who read it. The sacred texts of our tradition have been given to us ultimately to reveal the heart of the divine, demonstrating care for all creation and a desire to make all things new. And that's a source of great hope. So my hope for our community in this season, as we recover the sacred together in an ongoing way, is that we too, can lean into that spirit of joy that our spiritual ancestors were called to even as they studied the sacred texts. We hear the call to joy even and per perhaps especially in the midst of challenging circumstances. So yes, the world is still a messy, painful, complicated place filled with wildfires and earthquakes and viruses, fake news, oppression, violence, and toxic theology. But there is also beauty and wonder and awe and kindness and courage and compassion and care. There's also wisdom and freedom, and healing, there is the sacred. There is friendship, there is family, there is love, there is God. And for all this, we are invited not to mourn, but to rejoice.
to allow that joy of the Lord to be our strength, as it says in Nehemiah. So may we lean into that in this season. Amen. Amen. All right, friends. Let me pray for us for real quick in that regard, and then we'll move into our time of uh, conversation and breakout groups. God, I do want to acknowledge the different um, contexts that each of us may be coming from, our own histories, our own stories of how the Bible has been helpful or hurtful, how it's been used in helpful or hurtful ways. And we name that all of those things are, are real and true. And we also want to be um, in that space of moving from order through disorder into a reordered spirituality, a reordered community, a community that is not um, ultimately captive to that which brings disorder, but has space to connect with you in new ways that bring healing and hope and ultimately joy. And so would you be leading that process, oh spirit, and helping us find life-giving ways to either connect with sacred texts for the first time or to recover our connection with them in ways that bring life and help move our tricycle forward more deeply into your abiding love for ourselves, for our community, and for all around us. Amen.